morning. You might have noticed I'm not Matt. I am the younger, elder version of Matt. Uh, my name is Aaron Potratz. I am uh, one of the elders, and as one of you encouraged me recently to continue saying, and I'm, you know, you guys are telling me what to do here as an elder, so I'm going to keep doing it. I am the younger elder, the youngest elder on the group. Um, so I'm excited to be able to say that for a little while longer while I can. Um, and I'm excited to be back up here again as well uh, because last year I had the opportunity to preach and um, as I was meeting with Matt to go over my sermon uh, in preparation for that, uh, I think he transmitted his sickness to me and so I got up here and I was sick and it wasn't uh, the greatest fun to, to be sick preaching. Um, so I'm excited to be here again, fully healthy, um, to preach on the love of God today. Um, you can see our passage up there, 1 John 4, 7 through 12, um, which I'll get into in a little bit here. Um, but I just want to tell you a little uh, personal story to kind of get you introed to this passage. Over the holidays, my family celebrated my youngest son's 10th birthday, double digits, big deal. Um, he, I'm not sure if he's here yet, um, he's got a basketball game he was coming over here for, um, but we had a party for him. And he got to pick out his birthday cake. As a fellow chocolate lover, he gets that gene from me, he chose a four-layered chocolate cake with, with chocolate icing in between and fudge frosting on top. And my wife made it. Yeah, there we go. All right, let's hear it. Hear it. Praise God for chocolate. Um, that's the love of God right there is chocolate. And I'm done. Um, this cake was magnificent. And it's... Um, I think we just finished it last night. Um, it was magnificent, but it was also very rich, which I love. Um, I took a smallish piece to eat because you have to take a, a big, dense piece of chocolate like that, uh, chocolate cake like that, and eat it kind of slowly. If you eat it too quickly, you get this big sugar rush, and um, it's kind of a, this like ah, buzz, which is, you know, you kind of want to just walk that fine line, not quite get there, um, but get a little piece of that. Um, and so this passage in 1 John 4 is kind of like that cake. It's very simple, chocolate, chocolate cake, but it's also very rich. And you can't take it too slowly or else um, the really rich, delic delicious, chocolatey gooiness will miss you. Um, so there are two main points. Let me get out my clicker here. Two main points that John wants to show us in this passage. Um, number one, that God first loved us. He is the initiator, and he always has been the initiator. And then secondly, God's love compels us to love one another. And so you might summarize it like this. Christians, we ought to love one another because that is the natural response to knowing God and being first loved by him. So let me start out with prayer, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, point your people to you, to your love, and thank you even before all of that, before you've given me this opportunity and ordained this time that you have first loved us. Thank you that you um, have done so much throughout history to create us, to bring us here to this point so that we could see and experience your love. And that process of encountering your love being changed and moved by your love 
And then loving one another is your ultimate plan, and that's what gives you the most glory. And God, as I speak this message of your love and how it impacts us and how it ought to impact this church and your church as a whole throughout the entire earth, as other uh, peoples and other church communities are also doing, God, I pray that we would um, have open hearts and open minds to hear this message, um, to receive it, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us and work that message deep into our hearts to move us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of background on this passage. Uh, the author of this little epistle um, towards the end of the Bible, right before, just about right before Revelation, um, is the Apostle John, who is also the author of the fourth gospel bearing his name. And John describes himself throughout his writing as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a small but important little detail that's worth noting because I think it reflects the points that I've outlined for today's passage. John was so affected by Jesus' love for him that it changed him, and he didn't say that, okay, I'm John, this is who's writing this, uh, these letters. He said, I am now the, apostle whom, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think that's important also because John has authority to write on the subject of God's love because he was so impacted and moved by God's love for him. Um, and I think he, understand first, he understood firsthand what it means to be impacted by it. The theme of this book, especially this passage, is not a list of do's and don'ts. So if you are an organized list maker like I am, um, don't make a list of do's and don'ts because um, you're going to set yourself on the wrong track. Um, it's not a set of rules that we have to follow in order to be good Christians. Instead, but, but um, John is writing to Christians, so this is to um, fellow believers here, um, but rather John wants to show the close relationship between believing and obeying God's commands, what this looks like in real life, and how to tell if true doctrine true biblical doctrine, has effectively made it into the believer's heart and so that it is lived out. And I think John understood what Jesus meant when he explained that the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and this passage has profound implications as well for us today, even though we're looking at uh, the same passage that people for thousands of years earlier have looked at, it still has tremendous implications today because the basic message of the gospel still has to get worked out in our lives, which John is intent on urging us to do. So we're going to see these implications a little bit later on, but first, um, go ahead and open your Bibles to, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 863. Um, to 1 John 4, 7 through 12. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. So, oh good, this is working nicely. John starts this passage with some huge language without a whole lot of explanation. He's kind of a simple writer, um, but he packs a huge punch into everything he says. Um, So let's look at some of the things, the claims that he's making here. One, love is from God. Verse 7, love is from God. And then also, I'm sorry, love is from God. What this means is that love originates from God. God is the creator of all things, and so when he's creating, love is coming out of that. But he goes on. He says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then conversely on the other side, whoever does not love does not know God. Verse 8. And then John says, God is love. So love also is created from God, but also it gets its definition from who God is because it's built into his character. And then uh, John says, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, verse 9. And love is God first loving us, verse 10. This means there's no love apart from God. It's utterly impossible to have love or give love without God. So if you think about that, I want you to think about my children. Uh, I've got two boys. Well, if you have your own children, you can think about that way too. But um, when I was thinking about the, uh, the love of God and how there is no love apart from God, I was thinking if my wife and or I did not exist and you looked at my son, who's uh, my oldest one, who's a deep thinker, he likes to have you know, deep conversations, particularly late at night, um, but if you, were to, if you were to look at, talk to him and have a deep conversation, you would say, ah, he gets that from his dad. Um, that's a lot like me. I could have deep conversations all day long, which I do. Um, or if you were to look at my younger son, uh, who just turned 10, um, he's got this big, happy smile, um, big toothy grin, and that's just like his mom. When she was uh, his age, she had a, the same big toothy smile. And when you look at him, you say, ah, that's just like his mom. But if there's no mom and no dad, you would look at these children and say, where do they come from? How is it even possible that they could even be conceived? It's just completely unfathomable. And so it is with God. Because God is love, he's like the ultimate parent where everything gets created out of him. And here we can see John's rich theology. God has always been the initiator because that's what love is. God's love is demonstrated throughout history. God created the world, including people, and he gave us everything in the Garden of Eden, including his own presence, from nothing. Genesis 1, I'm not going to have you turn to that, but Genesis 1 talks about God creating. Um, He creates the whole world, he creates light, he separates the... Um, the land from the waters. Um, He creates fruit and ultimately culminates in creating man and woman um, in his image. And all along it says, God saw that the light was good, Genesis 1 verse 4. Or verse 10, 
he created the dry land, and God saw that it was good. And over and over again, God saw that it was good. And finally, he created Adam and Eve, uh, man and woman in his image, and behold, it was very good. He was creating in the beginning. Um, and then in uh, chapter 3, Genesis verse 3, when uh, original sin entered the world, God sent a, a solution to the problem. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And right here, he's foreshadowing his solution to the problem of sin. He already had a solution. He knew this was going to happen. He already had a solution to it. He was initiating this from the beginning. He's foreshadowing Jesus. Or, um, in his promises to his people, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, uh, Moses is talking uh, to Israel, and he says, For you are a people holy to your God, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, out of all the people of the, who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then if we keep going, um, ultimately, um, in sending his only son to be the propitiation uh, for his sins, um, this is foreshadowed in Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, For unto us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is predicting Jesus' birth, and ultimately John is saying this is the culmination of God's uh, initiation or his creation of love throughout all of human history. When he says in verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's love, which is Jesus. John explains that his only son as a propitiation is the fulfillment of God's initiation and love throughout history. This is the gospel right here. It's pretty easy. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever... Say it with me. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right. And Romans 5.8 says also... But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bore the punishment for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And he lived a perfect righteous life that we could never live and instead gave that to us. And then he died for those sins and rose again so that we might live 
and live with him and have eternal life. This is the gospel right there. And that is a wonderful, beautiful message. But it has implications that John wants us to see. God's love ought to move us. Um, The second point, sorry, let me back up. The second point is very simple, um, but John again just throws it out there. Let me say, uh, speak this section here. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So speaking in love, John says, Beloved, as if to pull us all close, kind of wrangle us up into one big group like a, like a hen gathers her little chicks. John says plainly, if God loved us like this, giving his own son to die for us, we also ought to love one another. And when we love one another, we complete God's love so that he abides in us, and this makes God's love visible to the world. God's love is incredible. It's so incredible, it ought to move us. And not just cause us to do certain things, um, that's like behavioral stuff, but even more than that, deeper than that, God is, John is trying to show us that God's love ought to change us, ought to move us, kind of like this ball that's rolling down uh, the, the aisle here. God's love is moving even the, the stones in the audience. It's pretty incredible. Wow. Not sure where that came from, but hey, good timing. Um, Our hearts no longer desire the same things because of God's love. They now desire godly things. And God's love should manifest itself in loving one another because that's the character and nature of God's love. He initiates, he creates, he gives to us, we receive, and that affects us. Um, And then also, this kind of love prevents against moralistic behavior Um, because a love-motivated behavior is joyful and reproducing, but a morality-motivated behavior is legalistic and self-limiting. So some of you know that I'm a counselor and I do a lot of teaching on boundaries for people and relationships. And there's this great book by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. I've taught the boundaries class here at Harvest before. And um, in that book, these authors talk about these 10 laws of boundaries that actually make relationships healthy and safe. And within that, one of them is called the law of motivation. And that says we need to be free to say no to something in order to wholeheartedly say yes to it. We need to be free to say no in order to wholeheartedly say yes. So if I, if I give you uh, a a command, if I say, you must do this, you might want to do that thing, like you must go eat a piece of this amazing chocolate cake. Some of you might be excited to do that, but there will still be that twinge of, well, but he told me to do it, right? I'm doing what somebody told me to do. And so in a way, you're kind of held back. You're, you're held back because you're just doing what, what I asked you to do. So we need to be free to say no to that. If I say, hey, go out and eat a a piece of chocolate cake if you would like, that's a great idea. Um, Who cares about New Year's resolutions? Let them start next week. Um, If I were to say that, then you could justify that a little bit and then come back around and say, all right, I'll just work extra hard on my treadmill the next day. Um, Now it's a free choice. You're making a free independent choice. God has given us the freedom 
to believe in him, to trust him, to follow him, to receive his love and respond to it, or not. And that's the amazing, freeing thing about God's love, is that he gives us that option. So now, instead of uh, a list of commands and rules, do's and don'ts, instead, God has freed us from that because we could never keep those rules. We could never do them perfectly. We could never live according to the law and succeed, doing all the right things at the right times for the right reasons all the time. That's what Jesus did. So the gospel frees us from that so now we can receive this gift of grace and live freely choosing the love of God and living out our behaviors for one another out of this love. So that's a love-motivated behavior. When we experience God's love and love one another as a result, this is putting God's love on display. This ultimately glorifies God because lives that were previously selfish and rebellious and self-serving are now lived out in selflessness towards one another. This also means that if your life has not been changed, his love has not yet been perfected in you. You may not have experienced fully the love of God. Now, Note, this is not a question of salvation. I'm not saying you haven't been saved. Um, instead, this is a question of sanctification. Not of salvation, but of sanctification. It's God's love working itself out fully in your heart and your life so that you live more motivated by his love rather than your own morality. And that's always going to be the struggle for Christians is wanting to go back to the law and do it ourselves and do the right thing and then remembering that we can't do that, and instead we need to trust in God and live according to the gospel out of God's love and empowering spirit to do that. So, how do we experience the love of God? Um, four kind of basic steps here. Um, we encounter, we engage, we accept, and then we respond. So, encounter, first you have to be exposed to the love of God, and that's like going to church, being here, maybe it's reading your Bible, um, talking to a Christian, somebody who's experienced it. Secondly, we engage, and this is more active than just being here, because you could just show up or just open the Bible and read and say, hmm, that's interesting, and then go home and not necessarily engage with God. You have to engage um, in a way that asks questions, that... Um, takes on a little bit of curiosity. Maybe you try to seek to understand. You have to give some of yourself in order to get some of God in return. That's engagement. And thirdly, you have to accept. Now, this is more than engaging. When you've engaged and you've given some of yourself and gotten some of these answers, um, then you might come to a conclusion of, hey, I think there's more here that I've got to kind of make a decision. Either I'm going to turn around and call that good, or I'm going to go even further and I'm going to see what more God has to offer. A lot of people struggle with this step because it means letting go of preconceived notions that you might have. It means trusting God. It means taking him at his word and ultimately letting him permeate your life, giving over your entire self to God and holding nothing back. Now, accepting is not just a thing that happens and then you're done, but like sanctification, it's something that you accept, you do, you make a decision, I'm going to accept, and then you continue to do that and you re reinforce that over and over and over. So you might decide, yeah, this is something that's good, I want to do it, I want to give my life over to God and uh, let his love permeate me and who I am, 
And then you're doing that over and over again throughout the rest of your Christian walk. And you're learning how to do that more and more and more. And then fourthly, we respond. And the more you give over, the more you accept, the more you are able to respond, the more you want to respond. Because as the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You taste and good chocolatey goodness, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. I want more of that. You respond. When God's love is rooted in you, it compels a response. You have to allow it to do this. And then you respond with affection towards God and other Christians. You give of your time, of your talents. You give of your finances, as we did earlier. Um, And you seek to know him. You want to seek to know him and to love him even more. So uh, what does this mean for us practically? Um, I think for non-Christians, in order to experience uh, the love of God, to use John Piper's language, you have to first ultimately understand the, in his words, the total depravity of your sin. Now it sounds really big and heavy, and I don't want to scare anybody away uh, with that. It basically just means understanding what being sinful means. It means being separated from God, um, choosing your own self instead of the, um, the right things, the, the good things. Because remember, all love comes from God. So it's uh, understanding your sinfulness and what this means in terms of being separated from God. And then when you can understand that, then you can understand the great lengths that God has gone through to love you, to save you from that sinfulness, and to bring you back to himself and to give you the experience of his love so that you can be loved and love other people. So, um, if this is you, um, go read John's gospel. It's a very simple uh, gospel. He even says in it, I write this so that you may believe. Um, So there's no sort of hidden punches there. Um, But he has a lot of really rich stories about God's love in it. One of my favorites, um, just I, I thought I'd mention, is... Um, in John 11, uh, Jesus uh, hears about his friend Lazarus has died or is dying, and then he stays in the town that he's in longer, and then he finds out that Lazarus has died, and everybody's sad and weeping, and so then he goes there, and he talks to Mary and Martha, who he's very close with, and they're crying, they're sad and grieving because Lazarus has been dead for a while, and when he hears about this, he's deeply moved and troubled, and the scripture, in the only time in scripture it says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And the people who were around him saw this and said, see how he loved Lazarus. See how he loved this man. So things like this can show you what God is like and, and what God's love is like when you encounter him and when you're hurting, when there's things going on in your life. Um, it's very rich with examples like this. Um, What if I'm a Christian, but I'm not feeling God's love? Same thing. Go back and read the Gospels. Um, Go back and read the Gospels and remember your testimony. What was your life like before you knew God? How did God come into your life and impact you? For me, it's incredible to me, when I was thinking about this, uh, thinking about this sermon, and even this morning, um, you know, sitting there thinking, I'm going to get up and preach a sermon. That's just crazy to me. Um, Because when I think about my life earlier on when I was a teenager, and I was, I knew about God. I kind of was, grew up in the church, and I believed. um, I knew that God was there, and I did some Christian activities, youth groups and such. But I wasn't, 
I wasn't really a, a full-blown Christian. I hadn't really given my life fully to God. I hadn't, if, to use my term, accepted Christ personally and fully. But then something happened. God came to me and he showed me that he has kind of like these cards here of salvation. In my mind, this is kind of how I imagine it. Um, he has these cards for salvation. He walked up to me and he tapped me on the shoulder when I was like doing my own thing, you know, living my own life. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, here you go. This is for you. And I didn't really know exactly what it was other than I knew it was a big deal. Uh, I knew it was salvation. But as I took it, I said, huh, what? And he then showed me what this really means, that everything that I had done had been forgiven when I didn't even necessarily want his forgiveness. I wasn't looking for his forgiveness. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm smart enough to know that I knew that I was not a perfect person uh, and I was doing things wrong. But he told me, hey, I know everything that's going on here and it's wrong and it deserves punishment, but I'm going to forgive you for that. That to me is incredible. When I think about God coming to me and choosing me over everybody, you know, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to choose me. He didn't have to choose you. We did nothing, nothing to deserve this. That's incredible. Go back to your testimony and remember how God impacted you, how God chose you. And it's going to be different for each one of us. That's my story. Go back to that and remember what God has done because that can uh, remind you of God's incredible love and get you kind of situated back on the right path. So what if you've done that and nothing really worked? You're kind of stuck. Well, there are some things that can get in the way of you experiencing God's love. Um, one can be some difficult emotions. Um, maybe you've got grief. Maybe you've got fear, anger. Maybe there's um, life difficulties. Life has just been hard. Um, maybe there's busyness. You're staying distracted, or maybe you're just constantly putting out fires in your life. Maybe there's lots of drama going on in your family or your extended family or your work or wherever. Um, those can be reasons why you're not able to get to that place of experiencing God's love, because when you have complex emotions or life difficulties, those things kind of come, in my the way I think about it is, in my mind, they kind of come up and they block your view. All you can see are these difficult emotions, or if you're so busy being distracted by these life difficulties, then you can't see and attend to God's love for you. Um, or thirdly, a lot of people struggle with pride. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York City, um, talks about superiority pride and inferiority pride. And we all know the superiority pride. That's the common, you know, arrogant person, person that thinks they're so great. Um, but not a lot of us had heard of, and I hadn't heard of before, inferiority pride. Inferior, inferiority pride is saying um, that I'm so bad, my sins are so great, there's no way God could love me or save me or forgive me. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe you've got the superiority pride, and you're thinking... Um, you know, I mean, I haven't really done anything that's been that bad. I was raised in the church, you know, always been a believer. Um, can't even remember when I accepted Christ. Um, the worst thing I've ever done is, you know, I stole my brother's pencil uh, off of his desk. So, like, how is that sinful and deserving of death? Um, that's still pride. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute here. Or if you're on the other side and you've got a checkered past, 
Uh, maybe you've done a lot of things uh, that you know are wrong, that you regret. Maybe you've gotten into some real trouble and really hurt some people, hurt yourself. Um, you may have inferiority pride, thinking that, oh, I'm so bad, there's no way God could love me. There's no way that his love is for me. This, these are things that can get in your way of experiencing God's love. Or lastly, maybe your own expectations are getting in the way. Maybe you assume or you expect something about God that isn't necessarily true, that isn't necessarily uh, defined by him or what he promised. For example, um, you might say to yourself, you know, if God loved me, he would let me get pregnant. I've been trying for a while, and I've been having some difficulties. But if God really loved me, he would let this happen. And maybe it's not happening. And because it's not happening, you think, oh, you know, where is God? Where is his love? Does he, is, is it there for me? Or if God loved me, he wouldn't let my friend die of cancer. How could a loving God let somebody die of cancer or go through that kind of struggle? Or if God loved me, he would be speaking to me and giving me more direction in my life, but it feels like God is silent. Where is God? How could he love me? All of these things may be things that you're feeling, or some of these things could be things you're feeling, but remember, these are just feelings. God's love and God himself is still there. If you're going through something traumatic or painful, those things are, are real and legitimate, and you may need to trust God's word, not your feelings. And when you come out of those things, you can look back and see that God's love was there and how it was there and what he was doing to bring you out of it and what he was trying to show you through it. So um, getting unstuck for these four things, if you've got these difficult emotions, uh, I encourage you to deal with your emotions. I'm a counselor. I'm not just saying, stop it, you know, stop dealing with, stop uh, feeling these bad feelings, although I do say that to some people sometimes just because it's funny. Um, <laughs> and they laugh too. Yeah, thank you. Um, but dealing with your emotions is like, well, well how, you know? Talk to somebody. Get some help. Um, work out, why am I feeling these things? Where is it coming from? Um, sometimes maybe there's an interconnection between these difficult emotions and pride or expectations. Um, but if you struggle with emotions, if you struggle with how to deal with feelings, get some help with that. It can be done. It just means you need to learn how to understand and work through your feelings a little bit better. But deal with those so that those feelings can get out of the way and you can be free to experience the love of God. Or if your life is a little bit out of control, if your life is um, a little bit chaotic, get help with your life. Talk to somebody. Get some objective uh, perspective on what's going on, where your priorities are. Maybe you need help rearranging them so that you can make space for God. Oftentimes, I've found that a lot of people, uh, if this is the case and they want to be on the other side, uh, experiencing the love of God, oftentimes, they're afraid of the love of God. Um, you're afraid of being close. Maybe there's some attachment issues you've got, some fear of trust. And a lot of people actually um, sort of unintentionally create a lot of busyness or create a lot of chaos in their lives because it's familiar to you. That's how you grew up. And you don't know how to have stability. You don't know how to have uh, consistency and predictability in your life. Um, so get help with that so that you can move those things away. Your life can kind of be stable and you're free now again to experience the love of God. 
or if you have um, the pride, the superiority, inferiority pride, ultimately you still have to submit it to God. You have to surrender it. Uh, in the Bible, there's a story of the prodigal son. You guys probably all know this story. Uh, there's a younger son and an older son. The older son uh, has done everything right, and he, he's kind of like the long-term Christian who's gr- grown up in the church. He's always been around. The younger son, however, is like the, the black sheep, the guy that wants to go and live a life of uh, debauchery and whatever else, have fun. Uh, but then he sees where that ends and he turns himself around. He comes to himself and he comes back to the Father and he's forgiven. And Jesus is uh, preaching this parable to the Pharisees who are kind of like the older son. And the older son is really upset because he's like, hey, I've been around, I've been doing all the right things. Don't I deserve all of your good gifts? Oops. That's the whole definition of grace. That's the whole definition of God's love is that it's not deserved. While we were still sinners, God gave us. If you think that you deserve it, there's something wrong there in that equation. So um, surrender your pride. And then thirdly, examine your expectations about who God is and what, he think, what you think he should be doing. And you can ask yourself a very simple question. What am I expecting of God? Paying attention to your own kind of internal monologue, your own thoughts um, when you're feeling certain things or when you're frustrated. What am I expecting of God? Is it consistent with Scripture and who God says he is? And so, in John's words, Beloved, if, so, if God so loved us, we should love one another. And it's interesting, if you go back to the passage, he says in the very beginning, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. And now in verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And further on in the passage in chapter 4, he gets even stronger and he says, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Out of God's love for us, we overflow with joy and then we have the ability to love one another. When we experience the love of God like this, other people experience that as love from us. When we're just being joyful about who God is and what he's done for us, other people experience that as love for them. When we let that overflow, we're not worried about our pride. We're not worried about what other people think about us. We just want to experience and express God's love through us. Some very simple ways that we can um, show God's love. Um, I didn't want to get into so much of how we can love specifically because I wanted to let God's Spirit speak to each one of you and uh, convict you of who you are, how God has designed you to be loving. Um, But a few kind of simple things here. Um, This kind of comes out of the five love languages from Gary Chapman. Um, Ways that people commonly show God's love show love is spending time together. So this is for all, you know, Christians here in our congregation. Um, Love one another. Spend time together. Encourage one another and build each other up from Thessalonians. So speak encouraging words to each other. Or you can offer to help somebody. If somebody's in need and you're just, you know, you've got a truck or you've got able hands or you know something about computers or uh, something like that, offer to help 
If you've got time and somebody doesn't have a lot of time for something, offer to help somebody. Um, or if you are good with your hands, you like giving gifts, create something. Bake a cake. Um, bake a four-layered chocolate cake with icing and uh, fudge frosting. Um, craft something. Build something with your hands. Something like that. Um, or finally, offer to give a hug. If somebody's hurting, if you see somebody that needs a hug, um, don't be afraid. When love is in you and abiding in you, you're not, you're, you're not so worried about what it's going to look like, what other, somebody else is going to think about you. You're just responding to it and you're saying, hey, you know, you look like you're hurting. Or, hey, I really appreciate you. Can I give you a hug? I mean, keep it appropriate too. Um, practically, um, with all these things that are going on in today's day and age, I just thought um, there's some challenges, I think, that we're facing um, that we could think about. Uh, you know, some of these things can be kind of easy, but what about the hard, uh, the hard cases or the hard things? You know, for example, um, what if, so, so loving somebody else who's like me or who's uh, similar to me or that is easy to love is one thing, but what about somebody who's got a different political belief than I do or somebody who voted for the other person, whoever that may be. John is saying we ought to love that person. Or what about if there's somebody who's raising their kids differently than I am, or who's decided to put them in this kind of schooling? What about that person? John is saying we ought to love that person out of God's love for us. Or what if somebody is... Um, here in church and they're really moved by God and they're like singing and dancing and really charismatic and waving their hands and I'm like a, whoa, that's weird. Um, how do I love that person? Or the opposite can be true too. Um, John says we ought to love one another. Loving one another is the perfecting of God's love and this puts his love on display and gives him glory. So I hope that we as a church will make this our 2019 resolution just after we finish that chocolate cake to more fully accept God's love into our lives and then to let that love overflow with our Christian brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your love, for initiating your love with us, for being love and then showing us what that love looks like so that we can experience it and then give that to other people. It's a hard thing to actually live that out, Lord, um, but I pray that these words that you've given us um, in your word and in this message um, will resonate with us. I pray that you will help us to get out of the way, um, that we can see how we get in the way of your love and experiencing it and then giving it to one another. And then I pray, Lord, that you will help us to resolve those things with each other, through each other, with the help of one another, um, to work those things out. Because that's ultimately how your love gets perfected in us, and that's ultimately what gives you glory. And so I ask God that you would speak, O oh Lord, that your church will be built, and your love is and the whole earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.